0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Amen. You can be seated. And as you're being seated, you can open your Bibles or unlock them, however you do that, and turn to Joshua chapter 3. And First, I want to say thank you to our worship team and to Mark and Marla uh, for leading us and serving us this morning. Uh, We're continuing in our study of the book of Joshua, and I've loved studying this. I've been so excited. Just to review for us a little bit, remember we said, you know, Joshua, it answers the question, how how do we walk in what God has promised for us? If we're going to live out Ephesians 2.10, what does that look like? And the book of Joshua records what that looks like for the Israelites. Because over and over again, God promises, I will do this. I will give you this. And then he says, now start moving your little feet and go walk in what I've said and told you is going to happen. And you've probably heard there's There's a lot of uh, symbolism, some patterns in these big Old Testament events. And so Exodus, the Red Sea, that's largely about salvation. Joshua, on the other hand, is largely about sanctification. It's about them crossing into and living in the promised land. And you may remember we said the real promise of the promised land is that God and man can dwell together. It's a place for God to be their God and for them to be his people. And so how do you get from promise to reality? From the promise of the promised land to actually living in it? Well, chapter 3, where we are today, is that moment of crossing. From promise into reality. The day has come. It is time to cross. And y'all, they get there and they find it is an impossible crossing. Wouldn't you know? When I was a kid, you know, schools were just now getting computers in the school. And you'd have, like, computer class and everything. And there was one game we could play. Only one. But it was a great game. Oregon Trail. Any of y'all ever play Oregon Trail? Yes. Love me some Oregon Trail. She had this little wagon going across and you're frontier and every, every once in a while you get to a river. And early on, the rivers were easy. You could just ford the river. You just go on it on your own, no big deal, no problem. But sometimes you get to river and it was a little higher and you needed some help, but no big deal, you could get some help. You could you had two options. You could caulk the wagon and treat it like a boat and float it across, or you could hire an Indian to help. And you know, pay him like three sets of clothes, and I always remember thinking, there's no actual people. I don't need clothes. Who cares? It's just a wagon on a screen sure, take all my clothes so I can win the game. That's no, no big deal. But every once in a while, especially if you left the wrong time of year, if you got to a river during flood season, y'all, there was nothing you could do. You, there were no good options. The river was so high, no matter what you did, you could not cross it without tumping over. And then little Johnny would die, and you'd make a tombstone, and all this stuff. But you had, there's no tools you had. There's nothing you could buy. There's no trick you could figure out to the game, you simply did not have the resources you needed to cross the river safely. And it is exactly the same for you and I crossing into what God has prepared for us. It's impossible on our own. Or to say it a different way, you can't save yourself and you can't sanctify yourself. So how do we do it? How do we get into those promises of God. From our passage today, we're going to see three things, just three things, three words, and this is our big idea for the day. Follow, prioritize, obey. That's what we're going to see from Joshua and the Israelites today. We follow, we prioritize, and we obey. Let's start reading verse 1, chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. They set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. There you shall be at a distance, yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So it opens. Israel's camped at the Jordan River. They're ready. They're eager. They're willing to cross over, but they are helpless against the flooded Jordan River. Now, if you go to the Jordan River today, you could literally just hop right across it. It's no big deal. And it's easy to get there and think, well, what were they complaining about? But remember the Jordan River back then was very different. So today it's been dammed. It's been regulated. It's been siphoned off for cities and, and farms. But back then it was a different story. So the the word Jordan, it actually means to descend because it is a river that descends. It starts up in a mountainous area in the north called Caesarea Philippi, where three rivers come together, and then it descends and heads south into the Sea of Galilee, and then it keeps going all the way until it empties into the Dead Sea, which is 1,290 feet below sea level. And so on that descending journey, it drops as much as 40 feet per mile in some places. And so that means as they get to this river, this is no quiet, meandering stream. This is a raging, fast-moving torrent of water in front of them. We're also told it's springtime it's the flood season. So you can picture the river itself was probably, I don't know, about 100 feet across, probably about 12 feet deep at that time, which is hard enough to get millions of people across. But they had to cross the whole floodplain. This this river, the Jordan, had spilled over into the whole floodplain, and so that floodplain is probably about a mile wide, and it is filled with thick growth, tangled bushes, and so it's not like they're just hopping off into, from a bank into a, a clean river, no, no, it's like they are going to have to wade through a fast-moving river in a jungle. And they're sitting there thinking, how do we cross that river? So he tells us early on, he says, the Ark of the Covenant will lead the way. So there's another famous river crossing, Moses in the Red Sea, and there's lots of ways that, that this river crossing is different than that one. And this is one of those ways. You may remember at the Red Sea, all Moses did was have to like, stretch out his hand and his staff, and the rivers parted. On this occasion, the priests are going to carry the Ark of the Covenant into the water, and the Ark will lead the way for the people. Now, when I was a kid... Everything I knew about the Ark of the Covenant, I learned from Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I learned two things from that movie. Number one, if a Nazi ever looks at the Ark, his face will melt and it's terrifying. I learned that. Second thing I learned was, remember the scene, the big sword guy? If, if somebody ever challenged you to a sword fight, you just shoot them with your gun. That's what you do. That's what Indiana Jones did. So, I realize some of you may have been influenced by that movie, so let's review what the Bible says about the Ark of the Covenant, okay? So the Ark of the Covenant, it was essentially a box, but it was a very, very important box. So it was about 45 inches long, 27 inches wide and tall. It's made out of wood covered with gold. The most important part of the Ark of the Covenant was the lid. And so on this lid, there was two solid gold cherubim, two angels whose wings touched together at the center. And you can read several times in the Old Testament. So Psalm 99, Isaiah 37 says, God is enthroned between the cherubim. That's that's where God is. And so what that means is to the Israelites, this, this Ark is the location of God's demonstrable presence. Now, this ark had normally resided in the innermost part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. But one person, once a year, could go in and be in God's presence between the cherubim. It was the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur. And to go in, he had to ritually wash himself because a sinful man was about to enter the presence of God himself. They had a name for that lid. That lid was called the mercy seat. And during Yom Kippur, the priest would sprinkle the blood of an innocent lamb on that mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. You see, inside the box were two stone tablets, a copy of the law. And it was a reminder as they went to the presence. They had not kept the law. They had broken the law. They were sinful. But that word atonement, that word means to cover. And so the picture was that the blood of this innocent lamb was covering up the sins of the people as they're in the presence of the perfect law. And so that made it possible for that priest to be in the presence of God. And now this ark, normally hidden in the tabernacle, is leading the people. It is out in front in plain sight. In fact, he makes a point to say, I want everyone to keep their distance so that every Israelite can see it. So the picture here is that God's presence is leading the way. The emphasis is that God himself is going ahead of them. In fact, the God's presence is mentioned 14 times in 17 verses right here. It is the central theme of the story. God's presence will do the work. And the key to the passage, the key to the whole thing is so easy to miss. It's in verse 3 when Joshua tells the people, now you follow it. Do you get that? You follow God. Now, many people have this exactly backwards. You know, a lot of people think when you become a Christian, you essentially get two things. Number one, you get your ticket stamped to heaven. And number two, you get, a, you get a standard issue, one of these, a little leash. And you get to attach God to the leash, and he follows you around. And you get to go about your plan. You know, I've already decided, hey, I'm going to have this career. I'm going to have this house, this standard of living. I'm going to have my 2.5 kids, you know. Come on, God, come on. And then, oh. You know, I'm gonna, we're going to go on this many vacations, and I'm going to retire at this age. You know, come on, God. Come on. Come on. Bless this. Bless what I'm doing. And then, you know, we're walking along. God's following us along. And then, what do you know? We get to a river we can't cross. You know what that river's name almost always is? The consequences of my own actions. Have you ever been to that river? I spent a lot of time in that river, you know? And then it's like, God, what gives? Hey, save me. Help, God. You're supposed to be following me. Is any of this sound familiar to anyone, or is that just me? Oh, it is. okay, okay. Give it some time, buddy. Give it some time. Men and women, Christianity does not come with a leash. It doesn't. There's all the difference in the world between asking God to bless what I'm doing and asking Him for the blessing to be a part of what He is doing. And so the first thing we learn is, hey, Do you want to walk in what he has promised? You follow him. That's how this thing works. So we follow. But in order to follow, we have to do the second thing. We have to prioritize. Let's look at verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. So Joshua tells them to consecrate themselves. This word consecrate, and probably what they would have done, it comes from Exodus 19 mainly. You also see it in Numbers 11, 1 Samuel 16, 2 Samuel 12. This consecration, it was a special preparation made before God revealed himself in a special way. It probably included some washing, some ritual bathing, and then they would change their clothes. And the symbolism there is they're saying, hey, we're... We're ridding ourselves. We're turning our backs on everything that's kind of collected on us in Egypt and walking through the desert. saying, Now, my my whole life is dedicated anew to to your plan. Something special is happening now, and I'm ready to make it a priority for my life. And it it wasn't just about getting rid of sin. I mean, even things that were good, they would refrain from, even though they were perfectly good. But they were willing to say, you know what, I'm focused on something different now i'm single-minded that word consecrated it literally means to set aside something for a special intended use and so growing up my parents you know we had our normal plates plates we used every day and they were perfectly fine plates they were good plates they did the trick there's nothing wrong with them but then we had the special plates and when someone special was coming or something special was going to happen, we prepared for it by busting out the special plates. They were consecrated for that special time. And so Joshua says, listen, when the Lord comes, his people must get ready. And notice he says, consecrate yourselves first, then I'll work. You know, it strikes me, all of us, all of us want God to work in our lives. And there's probably some of you here this morning that are frustrated that God isn't working more in your life. But if you ever stopped to consider that maybe the problem is not a lack of God's work, it's the lack of our preparation for it? You know, every study shows, this is the way we work, that people notice exactly what they are prepared to notice. So if I go for like a nature hike through the woods, I'm going to say there was nothing there. All there was was a bunch of trees. That's all I noticed. But if an arborist goes for a walk in the woods, you know, they're going to see countless things. They're they're going to see every different kind of tree, every species, all the different leaves, some young trees, some old trees, some healthy, some sick. He can see things that I can't because he has prioritized his life around being able to see them. And, y'all, the reality for us is God is working. He is working all the time. He is working every day all around us. Often we just have other priorities, and so we are blind to it. Sometimes we miss it because we don't expect it, and because we don't expect it, we don't prepare for it. Consecrating yourself is expecting God to work, not waiting for God to work. And when you expect God to work, what you end up doing is you end up prioritizing your life around all God has has said he will do. Now, we do something else. Distraction and busyness is what we usually do. But distraction and busyness are the opposite of consecration. And this is why many people, I'm convinced, miss God working. Many people dedicate their lives to trivial activities because they don't expect God to work tomorrow. And so we we fill our lives with things that really make no difference in eternity, and we, we keep trying to fill our lives up with more and more things that leave us less and less fulfilled. But maybe instead of filling your life with more, you need to consecrate yourself. You need to set aside your life for something special. We call that prioritizing. We prioritize our lives expecting God to work. And so think about it this way. If you knew tomorrow... God was going to do something amazing, what would you start doing differently today? Well, you'd re-prioritize your life in order to prepare for it, wouldn't you? You would get rid of the things that don't matter. You would make sure you didn't miss it. Imagine yourself being one of these Israelites on the on the banks of the Jordan River, and you really fully believe that in three days, God is going to lead you into the promised land. Well, for those three days, you have a new singular priority in your life, don't you? Man, you're going to make sure when you're on those banks, you're ready to cross when the time comes. And imagine, as you're in those three days, somebody walks up to you and says, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, the Cowboys, they're on Monday Night Football. What would you say? you say, listen, I'm rooting for the Cowboys. I'm rooting for Cooper Rush. He seems great, but there is something more important going on here. Oh, but wait, wait, all the guys are going to play golf. That's nice, but God is doing something amazing, and I don't want to miss it, and I stink at golf anyway. But wait, wait, Junior. Junior's got four games and 18 birthday parties today. You'd say, I I wish everyone a happy birthday. But I was made for the promised land. And I don't want to get left behind. Do you prioritize your life in a way that expects God to work in your life? You know what it strikes me? Listen, if I expected God to speak through his word as he promises he will... I would make time in my life for it, wouldn't I? If I expected God, to His presence to be here whenever two or more are gathered in His name, that I would make gathering with believers a priority, wouldn't I? If I expected that as a part of His body, God wanted to use me to grow others into Christ, then I would make room in my calendar and my checkbook to consecrate my resources for His glory. So could it be Could it be that we fail to see and to receive the Lord's working in the routine affairs of our lives simply because we have not prepared ourselves to see it? What we see in chapter 3, gang, is a very rare highlight reel for the Israelites. I mean, they've been on the struggle bus for 40 years. There's not a lot of highlights. But here, each and every one readies themselves prioritizes their life because they believe God will do exactly what He said He will do. So we follow, we prioritize, and finally we obey. Let's pick the story up in verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Ereba, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So there came a moment. There came that moment when the priests had to step their feet into the swollen river. And in fact, God says, hey, I will not stop the water until you step into it. You know, it strikes me, though, some steps, a step isn't hard, but some steps are harder than others, aren't they? I remember being a kid going off to, summer camp and they had, you know, like all summer camps, they had a ropes course. And I'm afraid of heights. I hated those ropes courses. But there was, and there was one in particular. It's called the V-Swing. So you come to really, really high. It was like the tallest one. And you're still on this platform and they hooked two cables to you that made a V. And you're standing on this platform. And literally, all I had to do was this. That's all I had to do. Little step. Something all of us could do since we were infants. That's it. And once you did that, you know, the, the ropes would catch or the, the, the momentum would catch you and it'd take you and it'd, it'd swing you up. But man, being that high up, I didn't want to take that step. It took me a long time to take that step. And taking that step, listen, it didn't have anything to do with my ability, my prowess, my superiority. It's just a step. A baby could do it, right? It had everything to do with faith. I have to believe this thing is going to hold me or I'm going to go splat. It's the same with those priests. You know, whether they would take that step or not depended completely on their faith. And listen, this is one of many steps of faith God will ask them to make. He will ask them to step into the water, into the unknown, into enemy territory, into dangers, into lots of things that they cannot control. And here's what he wants us to know. Here's the picture he's going to paint over and over again. Each step of faith, comes from, I'm sorry, each step of obedience comes from a heart of faith. Each step of obedience we take comes from a heart of faith. And this is why God loves our obedience. Listen, it's not because it earns us anything or because He needs us to get things done. Remember, God is not asking them to hold back the raging river. He's going to take care of that. By the time that day is over, everyone is going to know God is the one who did this amazing thing. In fact, God is going to push the water uphill. So all the way to Adam, it says, that's about 16 miles uphill, he pushes the water back. God's going to do all that. God is only asking them to take a small step of trust. And that's what obedience is. Obedience is putting feet to your faith. It's putting feet to your faith. Now, I don't know about you. I prefer not to walk by faith. I prefer to walk by GPS. That's, how I, that's my prefer, preferred method of travel. Isn't it great? You can pull up, you can see the whole route, exactly how it's all going to play out in front of you. And then if you Get an obstacle, no problem, recalculating. It just goes somewhere else. And then at the end of the day, if I don't want to turn where it tells me not to turn, guess what? I don't. And it adjusts to me. It's great. Honestly, I was reading the story this week and I thought, well, why can't God do it that way? You know, here's the whole plan, here's the map, here's how you get there. Or why can't He reroute them? Let's go around the flooded river, you know? Or here's an idea. Why doesn't he just wait until flood season is over? Seems way simpler, doesn't it? Because sometimes he has to use my feet to reach my heart. That's why. See, God God is not just utilitarian. It's not about, hey, let's just get people in the land ASAP. God is saying, listen, if I get you into the land, but you never learn to trust me, that is not a success. And how do you learn to trust me? obedience. You take a step when I ask you to take a step and trust me. So we follow, we prioritize, we obey. But you might be saying, if you're honest, how do I know I can trust God enough to do those things? I mean, it was easy for them, those Israelites, they'd seen all these miracles and all this stuff. I mean, it's harder for us. But actually, the scriptures say the opposite is true. See, the Bible says we have something that they didn't have we have a better Joshua to lead us there's a clue there's a clue in the passage in verse 7 it's easy to miss though verse 7 says this the Lord said to Joshua today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses so I will be with you God exalts Joshua well we don't expect that we don't expect God to exalt a man what's going on here Remember, we said all along, the whole Bible is about Jesus from start to finish. Joshua, over and over and over again, points us directly to Jesus. God is establishing patterns to help us recognize the better Joshua. And so you can read this almost as prophecy. In fact, y'all, this chapter is saturated in Jesus. Many people believe that This very spot where Jesus was baptized is right at this point in the river, a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And at Jesus' baptism, we hear the audible voice of God exalt Jesus. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. God is saying, hey, remember when I exalted your leader Joshua to lead my people into my presence all those years ago? The better Joshua is here. And it's not just a man. It is my son. So Jesus is the better Joshua that we follow, that we prioritize, that we obey. We see You can see this all throughout the New Testament. I want to take you to just two verses. We can see all of Joshua 3 in just two verses in Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who's that okay who's that cloud of witnesses well it's hebrews 11 it's all these old testament people who did amazing things but here's the deal it's not called the hall of works it's called the hall of faith god says it was by faith that moses crossed the red sea and took one step at a time so there it is we we see obedience and walking by faith And because of them, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's our consecration. There's our prioritizing our life. We lay aside sin and weight that slows us down, and we run with a singular, prioritized focus on him. Looking to Jesus, he says, the the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising his shame. So we look to Jesus. We follow Jesus. He's the founder. He created the way for us to follow him. He calls him the perfecter. That that word can mean finisher. It can mean completer. Romans 3 says this amazing thing about Jesus. Nowhere else in the Bible, I think, does does the Bible characterize a person in this way and so he says Jesus is our propitiation but that that word is actually the exact same word for mercy seat he says Jesus is our mercy seat so you remember that mercy seat in the ark where your sins were covered that leads you through the water that's Jesus turns out it's not a box it's a person after all And then we even see the Father's exaltation. He is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there you have all of Joshua 3 in just two verses pointing us straight to Jesus. This living, breathing, mercy seat will hold the waters back and lead you into the land where you can have a relationship with God. Follow him. Prioritize him. Obey him. Well, so what? It's time for us to do our so what again. So I'm going to ask Adam to come up and join us. And I want you to write down on paper or in your phone or if you have to write it down in your head. We'll give you just a minute while Adam plays. And I want you to think about how is God's word for you today? If you're not a believer, I encourage you, you can ask God if it's true that Jesus is the better Joshua who can forgive your sins and lead you to God. Tell, and if you believe this morning, tell him, I believe, and then tell us. We'd love to know that. Maybe some of you may need to ditch that leash. Ask yourself, how can you follow God instead of asking him to follow you? Maybe there's some that need to ask you, where in your life is God asking you to take a step, just a small step of faith, but to trust him? Or where do you need to reprioritize your life to consecrate it to God and prepare for his work? Let's all take a moment, spend some time with God, and answer our so what. And then I'll come back up and close this.